This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. Mysticism: A Study in Nature and Development of Spiritual Consciousness by Evelyn Underhill. First half of Part Two, Chapter Two: The Awakening of the Self. First, in the sequence of the mystic states, we must consider that decisive event, the awakening of the transcendental consciousness. This awakening, from the psychological point of view, appears to be an intense form of the phenomenon of conversion, and closely akin to those deep and permanent conversions of the adult type, which some religious psychologists call sanctification. It is a disturbance of the equilibrium of the self. Which results in the shifting of the field of consciousness from lower to higher levels, with the consequent removal of the centre of interest from the subject to an object now brought into view, the necessary beginning of any process of transcendence. It must not, however, be confused or identified with religious conversion as ordinarily understood, the sudden and emotional acceptance of theological beliefs, which the self had previously either rejected. Or treated as conventions dwelling upon the margin of consciousness and having no meaning for her actual life. The mechanical process may be much the same, but the material involved, the results attained, belong to a higher order of reality. Conversion, says Starbuck, in words which are really far more descriptive of mystical awakening than of the revivalistic phenomena encouraged by American Protestantism, is primarily an unselfing. The first birth of the individual is into his own little world. He is controlled by the deep-seated instincts of self-preservation and self-enlargement, instincts which are doubtless a direct inheritance from his brute ancestry. The universe is organized around his own personality as a center. Conversion then is the larger world consciousness now pressing in on the individual consciousness. Often it breaks in suddenly and becomes a great new revelation. This is the first aspect of conversion. The person emerges from a smaller, limited world of existence into a larger world of being. His life becomes swallowed up in a larger whole. All conversion entails the abrupt or gradual emergence of intuitions from below the threshold, the consequent remaking of the field of consciousness, an alteration in the self's attitude to the world. It is, says Pratt, a change of taste. The most momentous one that ever occurs in human experience, but in the mystic, this process is raised to the nth degree of intensity, for in him it means the first emergence of that passion for the absolute, which is to constitute his distinctive character, an emergence crucial in its effect on every department of his life. Those to whom it happens often enough are already religious, sometimes deeply and earnestly so. Rollman Wurstrin. Saint Catherine of Genoa, George Fox, Lucy Christine—all these had been bred up in piety and accepted in its entirety the Christian tradition. They were none the less conscious of an utter change in their world when this opening of the soul's eye took place. Sometimes the emergence of the mystical consciousness is gradual, unmarked by any definite crisis. The self slides gently, almost imperceptibly, from the old universe to the new. The records of mysticism, however, suggest that this is exceptional, that travail is the normal accompaniment of birth. In another type of which George Fox is a typical example, 
there is no conversion in the ordinary sense, but a gradual and increasing lucidity, of which the beginning has hardly been noticed by the self, intermittently accompanies the pain, misery of mind, and inward struggles characteristic of the entrance upon the way of purgation. Conversion and purification then go hand in hand, finally shading off into the serenity of the illuminated state. Fox's journal of the year 1647 contains a vivid account of these showings or growing transcendental perceptions of a mind not yet at one with itself, and struggling towards clearness of sight. Though my exercises and troubles, he says, were very great, yet were they not so continual but I had some intermissions, and was sometimes brought into such a heavenly joy that I thought I had been in Abraham's bosom. Thus in the deepest miseries, and in the greatest sorrows and temptations that many times beset me, the Lord in his mercy did keep me. I found that there were two thirsts in me, the one after the creatures to get help and strength there, and the other after the Lord, the Creator. It was so with me that there seemed to be two pleadings in me. One day when I had been walking solitarily abroad and was come home, I was wrapped up in the love of God, so that I could not but admire the greatness of his love. While I was in that condition, it was opened unto me by the eternal light and power, and I saw clearly therein. But, oh, then did I see my troubles, trials, and temptations more clearly than ever I had done. The great oscillations of the typical mystic between joy and pain are here replaced by a number of little ones. The two-thirds of the superficial and spiritual consciousness assert themselves by turns. Each step towards the vision of the real brings with it a reaction. The nascent transcendental powers are easily fatigued, and the pendulum of self takes a shorter swing. I was swept up to thee by thy beauty, and torn away from thee by my own weight, says St. Augustine, crystallizing the secret of this experience in an unforgettable phrase. Commonly, however, if we may judge from those first-hand accounts which we possess, mystic conversion is a single and abrupt experience, sharply marked off from the long, dim struggles which precede and succeed it. It usually involves a sudden and acute realization of a splendor and adorable reality in the world, or sometimes of its obverse, the divine sorrow at the heart of things, never before perceived. In so far as I am acquainted with the resources of language, there are no words in which this realization can be described. It is of so actual a nature that in comparison the normal world of past perception seems but twilight at the best. Consciousness has suddenly changed its rhythm, and a new aspect of the universe rushes in. The teasing mists are swept away, and reveal, if only for an instant, the sharp outline of the everlasting hills. He who knows this will know what I say, and will be convinced that the soul has then another life. In most cases, the onset of this new consciousness seems to the self so sudden, so clearly imposed from without rather than developed from within, as to have a supernatural character. The typical case is, of course, that of St. Paul. The sudden light, the voice, the ecstasy, the complete alteration of life. We shall see, however, when we come to study the evidence of those mystics who have left a detailed record of their pre-converted state, that the apparently abrupt conversion is really, as a rule, the sequel and the result of a long period of restlessness, uncertainty, and mental stress. The deeper mind stirs uneasily in its prison, and its emergence is but the last of many efforts to escape. 
the temperament of the subject, his surroundings, the vague but persistent apprehensions of a supersensual reality which he could not find yet could not forget. All these have prepared him for it. When, however, the subconscious intuitions, long ago quickened, are at last brought to birth and the eyes are opened on new light, and it is significant that an actual sense of blinding radiance is a constant accompaniment of this state of consciousness. The storm and stress, the vague cravings and oscillations of the past life are forgotten. In this abrupt recognition of reality, all things are made new. From this point the life of the mystic begins. Conversion of this sort has, says de Sanctis, three marked characteristics, a sense of liberation and victory, a conviction of the nearness of God, a sentiment of love towards God. We might describe it as a sudden, intense and joyous perception of God imminent in the universe, of the divine beauty and unutterable power and splendor of that larger life in which the individual is immersed, and of a new life to be lived by the self in correspondence with this now dominant fact of existence. Suddenly, says French contemplative Lucy Christine of the beginning of her mystical life, I saw before my inward eyes these words, God only. They were at the same time a light, an attraction and a power, a light which showed me how I could belong completely to God alone in this world, and I saw that hitherto I had not well understood this, an attraction by which my heart was subdued and delighted, a power which inspired me with a generous resolution and somehow placed in my hands the means of carrying it out. I will here set down for comparison a few instances of such mystical conversion, quoting where this is available, the actual description left by the subject of his own experience, or in default of it, the earliest authentic account. In these cases, when grouped together, we shall see certain constant characteristics from which it may be possible to deduce the psychological law to which they owe their peculiar form. First in point of time, and perhaps also in importance, amongst those I have chosen, is the case of that great poet and contemplative, that impassioned lover of the absolute, St. Francis of Assisi. The fact that St. Francis wrote little and lived much, that his actions were of unequalled simplicity and directness, long blinded his admirers to the fact that he is a typical mystic, the only one, perhaps, who forced the most trivial and sordid circumstances of sensual life to become perfect expressions of reality. Now the opening of St. Francis' eyes, which took place in A.D. 1206, when he was twenty-four years old, had been preceded by a long, hard struggle between the life of the world and the persistent call of the spirit. His mind, in modern language, had not unified itself. He was a high-spirited boy, full of vitality, a natural artist, with all the fastidiousness which the artistic temperament involves. War and pleasure both attracted him, and upon them, says his legend, he miserably squandered and wasted his time. Nevertheless, he was vaguely dissatisfied. In the midst of festivities, he would have sudden fits of abstraction, abortive attempts of the growing transcendental consciousness, still imprisoned below the threshold, but aware of and in touch with the real, to force itself to the surface and seize the reins. Even in ignorance, says Thomas of Solano again, he was being led to perfect knowledge. He loved beauty, for he was by nature a poet and a musician, and shrank instinctively from contact with ugliness and disease. 
but something within ran counter to this temperamental bias, and sometimes conquered it. He would then associate with beggars, tend the leprous, perform impulsive acts of charity and self-humiliation. When this divided state, described by the legend as the attempt to flee God's hand, had lasted for some years, it happened one day that he was walking in the country outside the gates of Assisi, and passed the little church of St. Damiano, the which, I again quote from Thomas of Solano's second life, was almost ruinous and forsaken of all men. And being led by the Spirit, he went in to pray, and he fell down before the crucifix in devout supplication, and having been smitten by unwanted visitations, found himself another man than he who had gone in. Here, then, is the first stage of conversion. The struggle between two discrepant ideals of life has attained its term. A sudden and apparently irrational impulse to some decisive act reaches the surface consciousness from the seething deeps. The impulse is followed, and the swift emergence of the transcendental sense results. This unwanted visitation effects an abrupt and involuntary alteration in the subject's consciousness, whereby he literally finds himself another man. He is as one who has slept and now awakes. The crystallization of this new, at first fluid apprehension of reality, in the form of vision and audition, the pointing of the moral, the direct application of truth to the awakened self, follow. And whilst he was thus moved, straightway a thing unheard of for long ages, the painted image of Christ crucified spoke to him from out its pictured lips. And calling him by his name, Francis, it said, Go repair my house, the which as thou seest is falling into decay. And Francis trembled, being utterly amazed, and almost as it were carried away by these words. And he prepared to obey, for he was wholly set on the fulfilling of this commandment. But forasmuch as he felt that the change he had undergone was ineffable, it becomes us to be silent concerning it. From this time he gave untiring toil to the repair of that church. For though the words which were said to him concerned that divine church which Christ bought with his own blood, he would not hasten to such heights, but little by little from things of the flesh would pass to those of the Spirit. In a moment of time, Francis's whole universe had suffered complete rearrangement. There are no hesitations, no uncertainties. The change which he cannot describe he knows to be central for life. Not for a moment does he think of disobeying the imperative voice which speaks to him from a higher plane of reality and demands the sacrifice of his career. Compare now with the experience of St. Francis, that of another great saint and mystic, who combined, as he did, the active with the contemplative life. Catherine of Genoa, who seems to have possessed from childhood a religious nature, was prepared for the remaking of her consciousness by years of loneliness and depression, the result of an unhappy marriage. She, like St. Francis, but in sorrow rather than in joy, had oscillated between the world which did not soothe her and a religion which helped her no more. At last she had sunk into a state of dull wretchedness, a hatred alike of herself and of life. Her emancipation was equally abrupt. In the year 1474, she being twenty-six years old, the day after the feast of St. Benedict, at the instance of her sister that was a nun, Catherine went to make her confession to the confessor of that nunnery. But she was not disposed to do it. Then said her sister, 
"'At least go and recommend yourself to him, "'because he is a most worthy religious. "'And in fact he was a very holy man.' "'And suddenly, as she knelt before him, "'she received in her heart the wound of the unmeasured love of God, "'with so clear a vision of her own misery and her faults, "'and of the goodness of God, "'that she almost fell upon the ground. "'And by these sensations of infinite love, "'and of the offences that had been done against this most sweet God,' She was so greatly drawn by purifying affection away from the poor things of this world that she was almost beside herself, and for this she cried inwardly with ardent love, No more world! No more sin! And at this point, if she had possessed a thousand worlds, she would have thrown all of them away. And she returned home, kindled and deeply wounded with so great a love of God, the which had been shown her inwardly with the sight of her own wretchedness, that she seemed beside herself, and she shut herself in a chamber, the most secluded she could find, with burning sighs, and in this moment she was inwardly taught the whole practice of horizon. But her tongue could say naught but this, O oh love, can it be that thou hast called me with so great a love, and made me to know in one instant that which worlds cannot express? This intuition of the absolute was followed by an interior vision of Christ bearing the cross, which further increased her love and self-abasement. And she cried again, O oh love, no more sins, no more sins. And her hatred of herself was more than she could endure. Of this experience, von Hugel says, If the tests of reality in such things are their persistence and large and rich spiritual applicability and fruitfulness, then something profoundly real and important took place in the soul of that sad and weary woman of six and twenty, within that convent chapel, at that Annunciation tide. It is certain that for St. Catherine, as for St. Francis, an utterly new life did, literally, begin at this point. The centre of interest was shifted, and the field of consciousness remade. She knew in an instant that which words cannot express. Some veil about her heart was torn away so abruptly that it left a wound behind. For the first time she saw and knew the love in which life is bathed, and all the energy and passion of a strong nature responded to its call. The conversion of Madame Guyon to the mystic life, as told by herself in the eighth chapter of part one of her autobiography, how a holy religious caused her to find God within her heart, with admirable results is its characteristic title. It's curiously like a dilute version of this experience of St. Catherine's. It, too, followed upon a period of mental distress, also the result of an uncongenial marriage. But since Madame Guyon's unbalanced, diffuse and sentimental character entirely lacks the richness and dignity, the repressed ardours and exquisite delicacy of St. Catherine's mind, so, too, her account of her own interior processes is marred by a terrible and unctuous interest in the peculiar graces vouchsafed to her. Madame Guyon's value to the student of mysticism partly consists in this feeble quality of her surface intelligence, which hence had little or no modifying or contributory effect upon her spiritual life, and makes her an ideal laboratory specimen for the religious psychologist. True to her great principle of passivity or quiet, it lets the uncriticised interior impulses have their way. Thus we are able to observe their workings uncomplicated by the presence of a vigorous intellect or a disciplined will. The wind that bloweth where it listeth whistles through her soul, 
and the response which she makes is that of a weathercock rather than a windmill. She moves to every current. She often mistakes a draught for the divine breath. She feels her gyrations to be of enormous importance. But in the description of her awakening to the deeper life, even her effusive style acquires a certain dignity. Madame Guyon had from her childhood exhibited an almost tiresome taste for pious observances. At twelve years old, she studied St. Francois de Sales and St. Jean-Francois de Chantel, begged her confessor to teach her the art of mental prayer, and when he omitted to do so, tried to teach herself, but without result. She wished at this time to become a nun of the visitation, as St. Catherine at the same age wanted to be an Augustinian canoness. But as the longings of little girls of twelve for the cloister are seldom taken seriously, we are not surprised to find the refusal of her parents' consent chronicled in the chapter which is headed The Verse Croix chez Monsieur Son Père. Growing up into an unusually beautiful young woman, she went into society, and for a short time enjoyed life in an almost worldly way. Her marriage with Jacques Guyon, however, a marriage of which she signed the articles without even being told the bridegroom's name, put an end to her gaiety. The whole town was pleased by this marriage, and in all this rejoicing only I was sad. Hardly was I married when the remembrance of my old desire to be a nun overcame me. Her early married life was excessively unhappy. She was soon driven to look for comfort in the practices of religion. Made to love much and finding nothing to love around her, she gave her love to God, says Guria tersely. But she was not satisfied. Like most of her fellow contemplatives, she was already vaguely conscious of something that she missed, some vital power unused, and identified this something with the horizon of quiet, the practice of the presence of God, which mystically-minded friends had described to her. She tried to attain to it deliberately, and naturally failed. I could not give myself by multiplicity that which thou thyself givest, and which is only experienced in simplicity." When these interior struggles had lasted for nearly two years, and Madame Guyon was nineteen, the long-desired, almost despaired-of apprehension came, as it did to St. Catherine, suddenly, magically almost, and under curiously parallel conditions. It was the result of a few words spoken by a Franciscan friar, whom a secret force acting in her interest had brought into the neighbourhood, and whom she had been advised to consult. He was a recluse who disliked hearing the confessions of women, and appears to have been far more pleased by her visit, an annoyance which he afterwards attributed to her fashionable appearance, which filled him with apprehension. He hardly came forward, and was a long time without speaking to me. I, however, did not fail to speak to him, and to tell him in a few words my difficulties on the subject of horizon. He at once replied, "'Madame, you are seeking without that which you have within.' Accustom yourself to seek God in your own heart, and you will find him. Having said this, he left me. The next morning he was greatly astonished when I again visited him, and told him the effect which these words had had upon my soul, for indeed they were as an arrow which pierced my heart through and through. I felt in this moment a profound wound, which was full of delight and of love, a wound so sweet that I desired that it might never heal. These words had put into my heart that which I sought for so many years, or rather, they caused me to find that which was there. Oh, my Lord, you were within my heart, and you asked of me only that I should return within, in order that I might feel your presence. 
"'Oh, infinite goodness, you were so near, "'and I running here and there to seek you found you not.' "'She too, like St. Catherine, "'learned in this instant "'the long-sought practice of horizon or contemplation. "'From the moment of which I have spoken, "'my horizon was emptied of all form, species, and images. "'Nothing of my horizon passed through the mind, "'but it was an horizon of joyous possession in the will, "'where the taste for God was so great,' pure and simple that it attracted and absorbed the two other powers of the soul in a profound recollection without action or speech. Take now the case of a less eminent mystic, who has also left behind him a vivid personal description of his entrance upon the mystic way. Roman Merswin was a wealthy, pious and respected merchant of Strasbourg. In the year 1347, when he was about thirty-six years old, he retired from business in order that he might wholly devote himself to religious matters. It was the time of that spiritual revival within the Catholic Church in Germany, which, largely influenced by the great Rhenish mystics Suso and Toller, is identified with the Friends of God, and Merswin himself was one of Toller's disciples. One evening, in the autumn which followed his retirement, about the time of Martinmas, he was strolling in his garden alone. Meditating as he walked, a picture of the crucifix suddenly presented itself to his mind. In such an imaginary vision as this, there is nothing, of course, that we can call abnormal. The thoughts of a devout Catholic, influenced by Toller and his school, must often have taken such a direction during his solitary strolls. This time, however, the mental image of the cross seems to have released subconscious forces which had long been gathering way. Merswin was abruptly filled with a violent hatred of the world and of his own free will. Lifting his eyes to heaven, he solemnly saw that he would utterly surrender his own will, person, and goods to the service of God. This act of complete surrender releasing, as it were, the earth-bound self, was at once followed by the onset of pure mystical perception. The reply from on high came quickly. A brilliant light shone about him. He heard in his ears a divine voice of adorable sweetness. He felt as if he were lifted from the ground and carried several times completely round his garden. Optical disturbance, auditions, and the sense of levitation are, of course, frequent physical accompaniments of these shiftings of the level of consciousness. There are few cases in which one or other is not present, and in some we find all. Coming to himself after this experience, Merswin's heart was filled by a new consciousness of the divine, and by a transport of intense love towards God, which made him undertake with great energy the acts of mortification which he believed necessary to the purification of his soul. From this time onwards his mystical consciousness steadily developed, that it was a consciousness wholly different in kind from the sincere piety which had previously caused him to retire from business in order to devote himself to religious truth, is proved by the name of conversion which he applies to the vision of the garden, and by the fact that he dates from this point the beginning of his real life. End of first half of part two, chapter two.